Hi everyone, Raphael Harry here, and you're listening to White Label American, a podcast where we hear stories from an immigrant or two, sometimes more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of White Label American. Thank you all for joining us today. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my patrons and those who have been supporting this podcast. I appreciate you all and thank you for your long support and keep the love coming in. And to everyone listening, especially our new guys, um, you can always join us. We haven't gotten to where we want to be. We're still growing and you know we are an independent um, podcaster. So yeah, we need as much support as possible. We have a lot of things we would like to do in the future. And for those who are not where they are yet to join us on Patreon, we understand, you know, times are hard and not everybody can give financially. But you can also support by um, subscribing, by liking and um, sharing the podcast on your social media feeds, share with your friends and, you know, um, give us some publicity out there. And um, and most especially go give five stars and write a great review about the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. It helps push us on the algorithm. And, you know, we, we're competing with a lot of big names out there, so we don't have that money to compete with them. So your help um, is greatly appreciated. So with that being said, let's meet today's guest. I'm honored to have Lordelina Martinez. I said it right. You said it right. Okay. And she is the president of the New York Capital Region of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. She's an advocate. She's been named by the Hispanic magazine, business magazine, um, three times as a top 100 influential. She's a commencement speaker, a commencement and keynote speaker, a national spokesperson on Latino and educational issues. And she's the owner and director of Martinez Gallery. And there's so much more to this woman who we'll be getting to meet today and to talk to that um, I can't fit it all in here, but let's just go with this for now. So welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you and to your listeners. I'm really pleased to be here, and I hope we have a uh, good and fruitful conversation. I hope so too, and we are honored to have you. So let's go to the very beginning of Lodelina. You have a beautiful name. Um, where did that name originate from? You know, where where's the beginning of Lodenina? Where did she? Where was she born? You know, her place of birth. You know. Well, I was born in Puerto Rico, and when I was growing up, I always had to spell my name because there were few people who were called Lodenina. Mm. But then, when the internet came around and I entered my name in the internet, I realized there were lots of Lodelinas. Wow. It's actually a name that comes from the uh, islands not far away from uh, Spain. And uh, it, um, it's a name that, uh, you know, was brought to Brazil, to Cuba, uh, to Cape Verde, I believe. So when I look through the name in the internet, I discovered that... Um, um, you know, there were Lavelinas for many, many years. In fact, there are a number of obituaries 
And it's very strange to read, uh, you know, La Delina Martinez has died. Wow. <laughs> a very strange thing to see in the internet. I would, I would, I wouldn't have thought about that. So, yeah. So, do you know the meaning of Lodelina? Well, itself, if you look at Latin, yes, it means to praise. Mm. Laude is to Laude. praise. Okay. And then Lina is sometimes used as the uh, diminutive. You know, it's little. It's mm. a little praise. It's not a big praise. Okay. Just a little praise. Okay. So. But that's the meaning from Latin. I don't know, you know, other languages, what the meaning might be. Oh. Okay. So the little praise, if we go by the Latin the yeah. definition. So you were born in Puerto Rico. Um, where, where, where in Puerto Rico? It's, um, it used to be a city on its own, but it's part of San Juan, oh. uh, Rio Piedras, it's called. It's where the main... Uh, University of Puerto Rico is, and uh, so it um, it has it had its own history, but then it became um, sort of merged with the city of San Juan. Mm -hmm. So now you know it has um, a kind of um, a hybrid uh, situation mm -hmm. because it's connected with San Juan. Yes. One of the things that happened is that uh, there wasn't a lot of money being uh, allocated to the that municipality oh, and okay. if you were to go now there's quite a great deal of blight mm. of urban blight in Rio Piedras which is sad yeah. you know sad to to think of your town um, not being um, you know as vibrant that as it used to be when you were growing up. There's something, I live in upstate New York now, and there's something that you see in some of the upstate New York towns. There were many towns in New York State that were devoted to manufacturing. And when manufacturing was big in the United States, those towns were very um, burgeoning and, uh, you know, very affluent. And now there are many towns in upstate New York that really are, um, you know, not as well off as they used to be. There's a lot of blight and, uh, and in some places, um, there are people who are trying to revive those towns, which is great, you know, and, um, but it's, it's that kind of up and down the cycles that you see in urban development. Yeah. So it's kind of like the problem that we have in parts of um, uh, Midwest America. That too. With, with the manufacturing towns, now some, some of them looking like ghost towns. Exactly. The jobs left. You know. Exactly. Yeah. And um, um, so, you know, the whole idea of reinvention is so important, not just on a personal level, but then also in terms of, of towns. How do you become something else when what gave you your personality, uh, your income is totally gone? Oh. And uh, uh, there's a lot in the United States that 
appears to be going through that kind of cycle. And some people are better at reinventing than other people. True. And I'm and I'm not talking about gentrifying because there is an awful lot of gentrifying also being done in some places. And what happens is that people are displaced. Yeah. People who were there before and they can no longer afford to be there. But I'm talking about reinvention. Um, I don't I don't know it so well, but there is a town called Kingston uh, next to the Hudson River. And um, a number of people have decided that perhaps the arts might be the way to reinvent Kingston. Kingston is a very old town, so in one sense, who knows how many other times it was reinvented, you know? Mm -hmm. but, uh, but that appears to be a town where that is going on now. There are also towns in upstate New York that used to be like fabulously wealthy and big, like Buffalo. Yep. And then Buffalo lost a lot of population but they still had a number of very outstanding things, such as institutions of higher education, uh, a system of uh, landscaping that was put together by somebody named Olmsted, who is a great um, architectural landscaper, all kinds of things like that, many fabulous buildings uh, but sometimes the idea is not so much to reinvent, but how to survive when a great number of your people have left. Something like that is happening in Puerto Rico right now. Many people yeah. left. There's a lot of flights from, yeah. the, from the island. Yeah. From the island because of the um, um, various problems such as Maria, the uh, hurricane. The, the last hurricane where, where the help never so, really arrived. So, so. so now you have an island, you know, that is used to be overpopulated before, but now it's um, trying to figure out how to be with fewer numbers of people. Mm. Yeah, because I'm, I'm aware of um, at the same time why people are moving out of the island. There's also a gentrification thing going on with a lot of people coming into the island and yeah. there's uh kind of like so the the it's like yeah, that's my problem with gentrification as well. It's like the the services, the 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 amenities that were never made available to the indigenous people is now being made available to the, those coming, quote unquote, the outsiders coming You're in. You're absolutely you know, right. What, what it, has happened in Puerto Rico, for example, is that people who uh, wanted to have new jobs yeah. sold their houses very cheaply to uh, people who came from the U.S. And so you have um, a certain kind of, uh, well, advantage being taken of uh, individuals who are in need, you know, and so now you have a whole new crowd of um, uh, of individuals from the United States who are in Puerto Rico because they don't have to pay federal taxes, because they uh, are um, 
are finding very nice um, uh, housing at very low cost, and so on and so forth. And you know, there's so a lack of appreciation of what yeah. the people who've been there, you know, they, they appreciate their community and their environment. And if you're just coming from outside, like, oh, I got a chip, and you're just jumping there, they don't really, that link is not really there. You know, you don't, except you. Yeah, that's it. Make, the link is yeah. not there. Except you so, make that conscious effort to create a link, you know. So it's uh, one starting. But I, I don't want to spend too much time. We'll come back to that in, in a minute. But um, how, how, how you, you spent your childhood also, over, most of your childhood over there? Yes, I graduated from high school in Puerto Rico. Okay. So, so um, with your childhood over there, um, I have to ask this question, which is like one of my favorite questions to ask. What do you consider your favorite childhood memory? Well, I have a lot of memories of childhood, but... You can give us two. Or, yeah, <laughs> give us two. Okay. I, I always love hearing childhood memories. You're very, you're very <laughs> splendid. I can give memories. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I love the most about the island at in, and it wasn't just during childhood, but later on, is the fact that we're an island and we're surrounded by incredible water. Mm. So um, going to Luquillo Beach as a kid and uh, later on was something that I loved because uh, um, it's, a, uh, it's a beautiful beach. And um, every day on my way to, on my way home, uh, sometimes I would uh, take a uh, bus that would take me through old San Juan. And on the way to old San Juan, you have a great vista of uh, the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. And uh, the smell of the ocean, the waves coming in and out, you know, that I never thought that I would be able to live without looking at that every day. But in fact, I live without looking at that every day. Uh, so it is, um, those are really um, um, terrific memories because uh, the ocean has always felt to me as a, um, uh, you know, very deep and very compelling part of uh, the environment. So those are, you know, that's a, that's a major kind of, um, uh, memory that I have. Yeah, it's always interest, interesting to hear people talk about their childhood memories. And uh, no matter the generation of my guest, the there's always something about outdoors and nature always comes up. You know, the majority of the childhood memories has to do with nature and them um, being outdoors and uh, it's something that I would love to give my daughter the opportunity to experience something like that you know being in Brooklyn it's, I'm not far from water but it's I'm from the River Rhine tribe I was born into the River Rhine tribe in Nigeria but although I was inland but the, the, there's mm -hmm. always stories about myself always having an appreciation always being drawn to water 
and um, I was born in an inland um, city, but my f- tribe, my family's tribe, is from the River Rhine area. So the way Nigeria works, you're, you're where you're, you're not from where you were born. You're, you're where you, uh, your family is from. So I, um, it was like every time I saw a huge water body, I was always excited. I ran towards it as a kid. The stories I was told, and I, was, I just started jumping or smiling, or ju- I just got happy. Every time I saw yes. water, and yes. even one time, they, they I, I don't know how old I was, but they said I got lost. Uh, they were, were visiting a village, and I got disappeared. And uh, by the time they found me, they, the only way they found me was because some um, of the villagers came and were saying, "There's one kid who's like a city kid, but um, he's just standing by the river, telling everybody, like, look at this big water! Look at this big water! It's so great!'" <laughs> Look at this big water. He was so excited. When you disappeared and you went by the water. I just went and I I don't, I think maybe they say I was three or four, something like that. Wow. Yeah, between three and five. Yeah, because I don't have any, I remember a lot of things, but I don't remember, I don't recall that ever happening. It's only a story that I've been told. So, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe between two and five, something like that. But I was standing there just yelling with excitement. I look at water, this, what are this huge? It's what is big, and I was just happy. And over the course of my life, I've always realized that if I wasn't somewhere that I was, if I wasn't close to a big river or big or the ocean, there were times I was literally I was depressed. Like the the period of my life where I was most depressed, I was I wasn't close to any water body. I don't know if that had a role to play in my life, but I was more inland at that period of my life. I was. Very yeah, I was most depressed. That was the period where I dealt with the most depression in my life. But every time I'm close to a water body, like sometimes I can just go sit down close to a pond or a, a, a lake, and I'm just at peace. Just and feel good. Yeah, yeah I feel good. Yeah. So. Yes. The thing about water also is that um, uh, it changes with the weather, mm. and of course, in in the Caribbean. Almost every day you have rain. Yep. And during that period of time when it rains, it gets sometimes very dark. And, you know, it looks almost like there is a uh, storm. And uh, then it changes. So the um, the way you look at water changes all the time. True. And it's not only a visual thing, but then it's also the... Um, um, that smell that the ocean has, you know, that mm. is, it's a very profound smell. It's the, it's the whale. It's very tactile as well. You don't have to be in the water to feel the air that comes uh, through and, you know, touches you. And so, so there are many ways in which um, being in the water, close to water, looking at water is really um, a magnificent experience. Yes. And I was lucky enough that uh, in my early teens, I began to do snorkeling with a friend. So we could see, you know, a lot of what was underwater and there are all of these terrific looking, I don't know the names of them, but terrific looking fish and uh, creatures and, uh, you know, shells and so on that you see when you snorkel. It's another level of um, 
um, uh, seeing the water and enjoying the water. Yeah, so you got more of an appreciation for the um, the, the yes. life within the exactly. water and um, the environment. Because so that's really that's really like my main um, and most um, wonderful uh, set of memories as I was growing up. Nice. Uh, um, the way that I saw the water and uh, uh, the way I interacted with it yes. a number of times. One of, I, if I may add, one of the things that I remember that I discovered, I don't know, I must have been like eight or nine years old. I um, was eating a, a mango. Somebody gave me a mango when I was in the water, um, you know, kind of going through the waves. And, and the mango got uh, very salty with the water. <laughs> And it was just um, a terrific taste to the mango, you know. And of course, one of the great things is that you eat the mango and it's all over your face yeah. when you're a kid. <laughs> But with, in the water, you can you can uh, clean your face and you're ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The solution for, to it right there. It's uh, right there. Uh, there's a song by um, the great fella, uh, the, the great Nigerian. Um, legend, music legend, and mm -hmm. it's um, it's water. The title is water, and it says it's talking about you use water for everything. You know, if you die, uh -huh. you use water to clean you. Water can kill you. Water can br water brings you to life. Water, what water brings life? Water can take your life. And what water keeps you clean? Water can make you dirty. And water can do anything, everything. And that's okay. it's literally in the song, and it says water is everything. And you can't fight water, and you shouldn't try to fight it. And it goes, it expands on that too within the song. But that's just a, making the song simple, because he sings also in Yoruba and mixes yeah. it with English. But it, you know, as a kid, the first time I heard that song, I used to be like, huh? What, what do you mean? And then you know, the girl that you're like, wait a minute, if a, if a child is born and, and you, they wipe the child, you know, because he uses that as an example in the song. You know, they get water and. You dip the cloth in water and you wipe the child. It's water you're using to wipe the child too. And when there's a, a dead body, they also wipe the, the body too. They can't wash it. And yeah, we went away. You know, but there was they used they used water to wash the body too, be it warm yeah. or cold. And he was talking about yes, life, welcoming life, life goes and end of life and all that. But water plays a role. So, but. I think without him being ex um, telling us directly, there was also a message in there for us to look after our environment, to look after right. that this water that you know we think some people don't take it seriously. Some, some you know, it has it's a major role. It's a major part of us. So we can't say it, we don't care because yeah. if we don't care, then It it will do what it has to do to make us care, and then it might be too late. Absolutely, and you know, people much older than I am, um, from other generations and so on, were really in touch with water and with other elements in nature, and were more careful about that. Mm -hmm. Realize that uh, you know we rely so much on. Um, 
on all of this to be able to uh, keep alive. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, moving forward, well, but still around a little bit from your childhood age, let's move into the teenage, to your teenage self. So, um, around that time, who who were like the inspirations on your life, or who would you consider your first role models? Well, you know, I was very lucky because I was um, someone who was interested in a variety of things. So I had a couple of um, really great uh, teachers. I had some good teachers in school. Um, I remember my literature teacher, Mrs. Cancio, uh, who, um, um, you know, introduced me to a lot of, um, of good um, uh, Spanish and Puerto Rican literature. I remember also my librarian uh, who um, uh, would allow me to go into the library when the library was closed. <laughs> and so I had I had a privilege that not many children had, uh, and not many of the high school students had. I could go, you know, I would knock on the door of the library at the school, and she would see me, and she would come open the door, and I would go in, and I would, uh, you know, spend my lunch hour or whatever at the library. So they were for me. These were women who really. Um, um, kind of um, um, became models. I also I had a, a piano teacher. I took piano as a uh, youngster, and uh, and she had been a um, a young woman who had been seen as someone who might follow a concert career, mm. but she um, gave that up. She ended up. Um, having a few children and then also giving classes to, um, um, to children and, and, and young people. And she was uh, really terrific. Doña Elisa was her, her name, Doña Elisa. And she was the daughter of a very um, noted uh, composer in the island. Um, by the time you know, I met her, she was an older woman and her father had been dead for many, many years, but um, his name was Tavares. So Doña Elisa Tavares was a real um, kind of uh, important um, um, teacher for me, not, not just in terms of, um, of piano, but also because I learned a number of things about myself. I learned about strengths that I had and also weaknesses that I had. One of the things that I discovered as, a, um, as someone who would go on recitals once a year uh, was that I did not like playing in front of people. I really felt very uncomfortable, very nervous. <laughs> and even though in the privacy of my house and in the privacy of her house, you know, I could do very nicely. Yes. The minute there was somebody in uh, uh, watching me or listening to me, 
I would shake. So that was actually a very interesting thing to learn, you know, to to kind of uh, uh, come to grips with the fact that uh, I did not like performing for people in that kind of way. So um, so those are are basically, and, and when I think of it, there were mostly women whom I felt were great uh, models for me. I obviously had uh, a couple of male teachers, but um, um, the women seemed to um, seem to connect with me and I seemed to connect with them at a kind of unspoken level, you know. Um, so so that's, um, that's some of the... Uh, that's some of the memories that I have of the people who uh, uh, who influenced me when I was when I was growing. So I would like to zero back to the piano teacher. Yes. So when she noticed that you weren't comfortable playing in front of others, she walked with you on. She she accepted that. No, she wanted me to, you know, she would say, you know this. There's no reason for you to be nervous. You know this. I, I was the one who realized that, uh, you know, this was a very big barrier for me. Because mm. there were a number of things that did not seem like barriers at all. I remember once that um, I, I played at one of the recitals and when I went to the piano she always had like 10 uh, children of different ages who would go to to play in the recitals and when it came my turn to do my my piece she walked over with me and she put her hand on my shoulder which actually sort of calmed me down a little bit but I realized you know, that there had been perhaps a thought that I might go to a conservatory, but I realized I'm never going to be a, uh, you know, a performer. Yeah. I'm really, I'm, this is going to be too much. Mm. And the amazing thing, Raphael, is that I was involved then in debating. I was in debating club and I also went and I participated in oratorical contests this and I was very comfortable talking to an audience and uh, you know sort of going um, uh, kind of face to face with a debater so to this day I um, you know I'm a little puzzled by by that although I have some ideas of what about what it might be and that is that I obviously feel more comfortable talking. <laughs> hey, that, 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 that's a good, um, it's a good thing that you were able to come to the realization and you, if, even at that moment, you still had someone who, who whose way of teaching wasn't, um, I, I, let me put it this way. I, I came from a b background that it was very, uh, I'll say very forceful in a lot of things. Yes. So for mine, there was 
no such thing as you had a weakness. It was, if you had a weakness, you automatically considered a failure. So there were a lot of things that I just ruled myself out of doing because the language of failure had already been ascribed to me. Or you just, you take the beating, you know, because yeah. well, why can't you do this? Your mates are doing it. Look how the other kids are doing it. Kids younger than you are doing it. Why can't you do it? And they say that to you two, three times. And it gets to a stage, you're like, I don't even, why should I even bother trying to do it? Or why should I, even, I don't even need to figure out if I can do it or if I want to do it. I don't care anymore because you don't realize that you are saying that to yourself. But now I'm looking back, I'm like, yeah, there, there were probably times I just said that to myself. I can take this beating. It looks cool to take the beating anyway. And mm-hmm. you know, so you start developing a, teller, um, a tolerance for the beating. And uh, you take the beating and then like, I'm the, I'm the cool boy. Yeah, I'm a cool kid for taking the beatings. And like, why, why bother trying? You don't need to try if you can get beaten and you move on. And that's how a whole bunch of us started um, avoiding certain things and, you know, without realizing that uh, there were other ways that we could have been taught because all the certain group of teachers who we had at that period were all, you either do this, if you can't do it, then we'll beat you. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're a failure. And if you're a failure, then you take the beatings. And we're like, all right, we had the failures then. So, and um, yeah, so we just accepted that. And that's how it, 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 we, we, we took it until later on we start meeting people like when we met people who had teachers like yours we, we, we it always felt like we 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 ran into an alien you know yeah because i remember um, back uh, back in my nigerian days that i there was um there were two brothers that i met when i moved to a different city and they came from a family that they were they, no none of them got beat they never received any floggings and they went to a, yeah, it was a much, uh, um, the, the school was uh, a more elite school, but mm-hmm. there was, uh, they weren't used to being beat. They weren't used to being flogged. They, they, they had never had that type of experience. And when they said that in the circle where we were, everybody looked at them and was like, these guys are weak. You know, that was the first thing that we, we said. It just, felt like we, we need to push them down or like insult them because it felt like these people were not exposed to the torture that we had been exposed to. So the only thing we could use to find commonality was to just insult them and make them feel bad mm. without realizing that they were the ones who were lucky enough to get the right people the right, the way teaching should be done, the way a teacher should show compassion, the way a teacher should show empathy for the students You understand that you're teaching human beings and there's going to be different reactions, there's going to be different ways of um, um, receipt of the teachings and all that. They were the ones who got to experience that. And, you know, so even with time, the older I got, even when I came across teachers who were different, teachers were more willing to put in time and effort that wall had been, you know, had been set up where it was like either I get it the first time, if I don't get it, then the failure, I expect the beating. And it's just like, I'm not going to beat you, but I want, I want to work with you. I'm like, why? <laughs> you know? 
I was like, why? <laughs> why, why, why are you making all this effort? You know, uh, well, you know, it's a kind of um, culturally, I think sometimes there are these shortcuts mm -hmm. where people think that, okay, this is not coming along the way that I think it should be going um, uh, with my student or with my child or with this person that I'm taking care of. So here, quack in the face or in the head. And, uh, you know, and, and it's a very lazy way of interacting with children. Indeed. Uh, the first time that I taught, I had the, um, um, the opportunity to teach at a Montessori school. And so I began reading about Montessori and learning about Montessori from the very experienced teachers who were in that school, who taught me about Montessori philosophy and so on. And it's something that I have adopted. And that is the idea that we are naturally learners. Mm -hmm. We want to learn. Yes. We all learn differently, but we all want to learn and we all want to feel good when we learn. True. And uh, so the important thing is to organize things so that one can learn so that if you're teaching someone, you are providing the opportunity for them to learn, to catch on. You know, to, oh, yeah. To, and and um, it's, um, you know, it's kind of like um, a very... Um, it's a very important thing to be teaching someone something, whatever it may be, because you are, in effect, uh, either facilitating that learning or you are just being in the middle. You're just making it worse for that person. And when one doesn't learn, one doesn't feel good about oneself. One thinks, you know, am I? is there something bad with me? Is, am I... There's something wrong. So it's not only that you don't allow the student to learn, but you're also allowing all kinds of doubts. Yeah. Because you, you, it's like playing with clay. You're molding. Yes. You're, you're molding it. This is jumping forward a little bit, but this is, you're molding a creature. Yes. And if you aren't careful, you, you're molding it in the wrong way. Yeah, because there are so many doubts that I had about myself. In fact, I, I didn't even consider it doubt. I just took it as yeah, this is a trait. This is who I am. And when I will join the navy and decide to um, start taking college classes, I will try my hardest to avoid certain subjects. And it was just um, out of luck. Well, it was by chance that. Um, when I got deployed in the Middle East and I decided to sign up for classes, I, it was the last day, so I didn't have the opportunity to pick classes. The mm -hmm. um, registrar at the Navy College was just like, these are the classes that are available. They have already started. They're right now, you sign up for this and you can go to class right now. From here, just go straight. And I was like, oh, what classes? And she said, chemistry, Arabic, and mathematics. I was like, ah, don't you have anything else? But she's like, you you should be, you'll be fine. You'll be able to pass this. I was like, ah, I don't think I'll be able to pass this because I don't think I've ever been able to pass chemistry and mathematics in my life. And I ended up getting A's in those two. And it felt like, wait, I'm almost 30 and I'm getting an A in chemistry and mathematics, yeah. but I've been failing those in my life. But 
how come? And okay, maybe I can try the next classes. And, and then it started changing for me. That was the first time in my life that, because I was already, already prepared my withdrawal. I'm not going to go to school anymore. This is it. I'll just fail these classes and that's it. Um, but after one week in the class, it changed. And after that, it just, uh, I went on and that's how I end up being able to get my degrees. And, uh, but the, I met people, I, I got a different experience that showed that the, the molding showed that it, they, I was being molded in a different, in the wrong way. But finally right. I met the right people who were able to mold me in the right way. And I was like, wow, I, I know people who, when I try to talk to them about school, they're like, oh, hell no, this is not, nope, no, 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 no. And those, some of them is that interaction that they got and the, the molding has set them in that wrong direct, wrong path. And they're like, no, I don't want to experience this anymore. I don't, no, I don't want to reopen this. No, it's not going to happen again, you know, and. Well, one of the things that is really important to learn, and as a teacher, I like to, um, uh, communicate this to my students. One of the things that is important is to learn how to fail. Yes. You know, if you if you make a boo boo, <laughs> let's go. If you do something and it it doesn't work, that you uh, instead of giving up, you say, okay, so let's see how we can do this. How can we try this? What else can we? use in order to uh, um, to get this done because in effect that really is um, that's that's really what brings a certain level of um, uh, achievement when you are willing to uh, say oh that didn't work at all I gotta try it again yes you know and it's it's and Somewhere inside of you, you have to find that uh, strength to be able to say, well, you know, I'll try again. And if I fail, it's okay, but I'll keep trying until I am able to find a way, you know. And uh, that was one thing also that I learned from my Montessori experience. Mm. I'm really happy that it was one of my first teaching experiences, if not the first. Yeah. And that was um, the idea of experimenting, mm. the idea of trying. And if it did not work, try something else. Let's see if something else will work. And as a teacher, that's really crucial because there's lots of stuff that might work with one student, but not yes. with another student. Mm -hmm. And there are things that might work with one group and not with another group. You know, so you have to be flexible enough to say, uh, how do I how do I try this? How do I get over this? How do I um, you know present this in a way that will be uh, will be helpful? So so that that um, you know that that kind of sense uh, you might fail, but failure is not permanent. It's only permanent if you decide not to do anything about it. Exactly. You know, failure teaches you a great deal. And, uh, and you can try it in different ways. And if it does come to a point where no matter what you try, it doesn't work, well, uh, then uh, 
you know, you've given it all, but um, but don't accept the first, uh, it didn't work. Mm. Don't accept that, you know. And when you are a business person, when you have a business like I have now, a gallery, it's very important to keep that in mind. You know, I, I had to close my gallery because of the pandemic in March of 2020. And I did not open the gallery until a month ago. That is an incredibly difficult time, more than a year. Yeah, more closed. than a year. Wow. More than a year closed. And, uh, you know, I kept thinking, well, how do I do different kinds of things? And I realized that technology was one way of doing things. What you're doing now with your podcast, you're reaching people with your podcast. Yes. You're talking to people with your podcast. This is, an, you know, one of the tools that we now have. And I've begun doing something like that. And I'm, I'm not really someone who is that comfortable with technology, you know, so... I'm, uh, I'm, I've had to do uh, te uh, technology for dummies. <laughs> we, we all have to, trust me. <laughs> uh, trust me. Um, it, it's beautiful that you, you, you said we have to learn how to feel because it, it's the truth, you know. Um, the, the thing is, you know, growing up, it was, I think a lot of the messaging I got was, you know, if you don't get it right, that's it. You know, you have to go start do something brand new or you, you can't try again. It's, it's like, you know, failure wasn't an option. Failure, mm -hmm. was, it, it was like a taboo if you failed. You know, like people laughed at you and it was right. all that. And the, the way the stories were told about so many people who found success just seemed to be like they never failed at anything in their life. It just, it, it, it was just arranged that way until later on when I came to this awareness that just because I failed once, even twice or three times, doesn't mean the end of the world. Exactly. And then I started to realize that even the people who had been packaged in front of me, like, look at this person, this person made it at this age, this person and this, and I was like, that person failed a lot of times. You didn't, you only looked at one side of it and said, this is it. This is what we're going yeah. to accept. We're not going to accept the failures. And that's when I started changing how I talked, how I um, looked at things and how I accepted things. So even when I faced failure, like even with the podcast, I had a podcast previously with the wrong person who stole all my stuff because um, I didn't know anything about the, the, the technology side of it, uh, the, um, the technical side of it. And this person was supposed to be the person to take care of that. And he stole everything I bought, which I shouldn't have even spent that amount of money. I should have spent way less than that. But I believed and trusted the wrong person, and he stole everything. And mm -hmm. I was almost falling back into that, oh, I failed. I don't need to do this anymore. But there were people who were like, hell no. Well, don't let that stop you. You have, you, 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 you have something that is, you can even make it better just because you feel, now you've seen, you've seen how it works. Take what worked and then make it better than uh, what just failed. And that's how I ended up with what I have today. And even when I started this podcast, at first it was only for people to come to the studio and sit down with me, you know, people in New York City, especially come sit down with me in the city. So like when um, we, I spoke to our mutual friend, Michael Roach, 
you know, I, that's what I told him. Like, yeah, any guest he was going to give me was to come to the studio and sit down with me in the studio. And then the pandemic happened. Nobody can come sit down with me face to face. And I had to start reaching out to people outside of um, 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 New York City. And I evolved. So instead of taking that as a failure, it moved to the next level. And then, you know, I adapted and evolved with it. So, yes, we... We could, I could have easily just said, oh, this is a failure, I failed, you know, and sat back and said, oh, within a year of doing this podcast, I'm not at 100,000 downloads, I'm not at this, I'm not at that, I'm not here, and I consider myself a failure. But there are other people who have said, oh, I'm so proud of you, I'm happy, I, I, I met you, I'm already, I'm looking, you're, you're my role model, without you, I wouldn't be able to start my own podcast, and... It's amazing. I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself anybody in the podcasting space, but there are people who I haven't met them face to face, but just from messages I've received, they say I'm the one who, you know, they, they, they look up to me and I'm like, wow, I can't, I, I might, I might, if I'm judging myself on the wrong barometers, then I'm a failure. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not even close to that. I am nowhere close to that. So, Yes. It's important to be able to uh, uh, kind of um, see where things are and what you might um, you might want to do. When I opened my gallery twenty years ago, I, um, I had all kinds of plans to develop. Um, um, you know, I had a business plan, and I also had a plan to collaborate with some corporations mm -hmm. to sell them art and so on and so forth. And, um, and I opened in April and in September we had 9-11. Wow. And when 9-11 took place, it was, um, it was not only in New York City where the tower, uh, you know, the towers came down yep. and people lost jobs and so on. But it was throughout uh, throughout the Northeast and in upstate New York, people were not going out. Mm -hmm. People were afraid that something was going to happen. I mean, it was really, uh, it was almost like a, a COVID, you know, yeah. an early COVID. Uh, and uh, so I had to say, oh my God, I've got all these plans but it looks like I'm not going to be able to put them into into action. I'm going to have to work things differently. And and so, you know, I that's one of the things that I did. I'm one of the questions was, do I close the gallery now and then just kind of forget about it? Or do I try to maintain this effort? And uh learn from what is going on because there was nothing that told me this is what's going to happen mm. you know there was no no kind of uh indication that people were going to start going out to people were going to start buying again yeah you couldn't so, you couldn't tell when the recovery was going to happen so yeah exactly yeah. exactly so um you you know, I had to. I had to think in terms. Okay, let's uh, let's observe. Let's wait. Let's uh, uh, redesign my plans. Let's try other things. 
and and um, so when you talk you talk about your first podcast and then the second one, you know, it's the same thing. Something happened unexpected. Something uh, that sort of threw um, a uh, you know wrench in in your plans and so on and and so you have to figure out okay how do how do I do what I want to do yes what what comes next and uh, and and there's a great deal um, of learning that comes out of that but also. There's a great deal sometimes of um, of doing things in a better way than you thought they may have been done. That's true. That's true. Because without, if I just talk to only the first model, I don't think I won't be I won't be able to talk to you today, except if I'd come upstate. You know. So uh-huh. you know. So, but by listening to a suggestion about hey, why? Just would you sit down and wait until the pandemic's over or why don't you take the next step? Because at first I was even more afraid of, oh, what if I call people and then the connection is not clear? And I was like, I was looking for every reason not to even take that step because that mindset is already there. Like, you know, I already have one thing I'm comfortable with. Why go <laughs> a little bit further? <laughs> but, you know, it, it but I'm glad I took that step because I'm I wouldn't be here today talking to you and you know. Well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> okay. We're having a great conversation. Oh yeah. So before we move forward, I just have to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Hi everyone, your host Raphael Harry here. I can't believe we have gone past our one-year anniversary of doing White Label American. I've had the privilege of speaking with some amazing people, sharing their modern day immigrant stories. And you've allowed this Nigerian immigrant to share parts of his immigrant journey through this podcast. Also, one of my goals of this podcast is breaking down artificial walls that keep people from getting to understand each other. Based on your wonderful feedback, over the last year, I think we have done a decent job in breaking down some of those walls. We would like to continue and expand on this mission, but we need your help. I've had an amazing time creating and producing episodes for this show largely on my own. We have a lot of ideas for new and exciting content to expand upon the mission, but we need direct support from you, our listener, which is why we have created a White Label American Patreon page where you can make a one-time donation or become a sustaining contributor where you can get access to exclusive content, help me interview upcoming guests by submitting questions, and even have the chance to sit down with me for a one-on-one conversation either virtually or in studio. So if this podcast means something to you, and if you really love this show, think about becoming a sustaining contributor and donating by going to patreon.com slash white label American POD. Thanks for listening and for the privilege of your company. So welcome back. 
and we shall continue this great conversation that we are having. So we've already brought up the, the gallery. So um, let's dive into the, the art world. But before we, uh, we're still going to come back to the gallery. But before we do that, you know, in my younger, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I still consider myself young, you know, depending <laughs> on who's asking, I'll say 21. We are all young. Yes, you know. But um, let's say pre um, young adult days, uh, approaching young adults, um, you know, if you ask me about art, I, I'll, I'll be like, what? Uh, that's for only rich people, you know. We, 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 what, what do I need to art for? Like, no. And it was a, it's another thing that I blame on colonialism because um, my preteens was in Benin City, which is the ancient one of the ancient cities in uh, present day Nigeria, and it's one city that has contributed a lot to art. And uh, when Britain colon, um, invaded uh, Benin City, uh, how many I've forgotten how many hundreds of years ago. A lot of artifacts were stolen, which they're still in conversation now about finally uh, uh, reparating back. But um, there's so much historical context to Benin City when it comes to the art world, the, the bronze um, bronze um, art works. Is there's a particular area of Benin City which I know that area, but while I was schooling in that same city from my um, primary into secondary school days, which is like um, into junior high school and uh, junior and uh, senior and high school. It was kind of looked down upon by us because we're like, oh, yeah, hell no, I, I'm, I'm going to go to university, I'll get a degree, why would I go work there? You know, this is something that, you know, I, I don't, this is not, there was no reverence for the work they did, that this was something of huge value because we didn't even, understand how significant it was to the world that there was this is historical that i was walking past an area that has been in existence for thousands of years right and so if you asked me a few years after that like hey well, well, what is art i'm like oh art is only for rich people because they're the ones who want to pay money and put something on their wall and then you know, say van gogh and um um Picasso and all that. I'm like, ah, rich people only. Yeah, don't, don't bother me with that. And so later on, you find me in the flea market. I'm walking by and I see a painting. I'm like, that, 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 look, that look nice though. You know, maybe I should hang this on my, should I put this in my living room? Nah, I don't know. Or I go to Comic Con because I'm a big comic guy and I see some of my artists and I see, they, oh, they're like, oh, would you like this poster? I'm like, oh, yeah. And then somebody will come to my house and I'm like, oh, that's a great work of art. I'm like, well, wait, is this the same art that I was, you know, talking trash about a few years previously? Like, hey, this is uh, only for rich people. Am I rich now that I have art in my house? And somebody will see a mask that I, an African mask that I got. I don't know where it's from, but I saw it in the flea market. And wow, this is a great work of art. And then I start reading different materials and i'm like wait a minute the place that i grew up in is historical when it comes to art a lot of works there you know that were stolen by the british empire that i found in museums all over the world 
And I'm like, wait a minute. So the whole art is only for rich people was a wrong uh, definition by some, you know, in my ignorant state. So when it comes to you, how, how will you define art? Well, it's, it's a great question and a very difficult one. Yes. Because there are individuals who feel that art is sort of divided between high culture and popular culture. Mm. And so they feel that only what has been uh, made by um, highly trained uh, uh, artists is art. Only the um, um, only those elements of high culture is art. And popular culture, it's just folk art or, you know, regular day-to-day sort of thing and so on. There are people who believe in those kinds of categories. Um, more recently, uh, I would say in the latter half of the 20th century, there has been more the notion that... Um, a couple of notions. One is that everything uh, that is made is art. So it, it doesn't matter whether it's made out of precious material, whether it's made by a very well-trained uh, person or by uh, someone who has no training. Uh, all of it is art. Um, some of it might be good art. Some of it might be so-so art. Uh, and then there, there are those who also feel anything that an artist makes uh, is art, no matter what it is that that artist has made. If that artist had taken a piece of paper and uh, sort of ripped it into very small pieces and put it on top of a table, that could be considered art. And so you have in a number of places now what's called conceptual art, you know, which is sometimes stuff like that, like uh, little pieces of paper that have been <laughs> assembled on a table or different kinds of installations which you look at and you say, what, what is this? <laughs> I think I what? saw one yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? You know, so it's a, um, it's, a, it's a big question and a difficult question. I'm not trying to bypass it. It's just that an awful lot of, um, uh, um, uh, people who are involved in aesthetics and philosophy yes. and critics and so on, they, they debate this. This isn't like, like the, the primary uh, topic of discussion. What is art and what, uh, for me, uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I um, know is that uh, whenever I encounter something that someone has made, uh, if I have a new idea or if I have a new feeling, for me, that becomes art oh. because it has in some sort of way touched me. It might have touched me by making me angry, by making me say, oh, what a stupid thing. Or it has touched me by making me think, oh, what a beautiful thing, you know, and uh I have to tell you that when I was in college, um, I came to college in the States, uh, in New Rochelle, uh, in New York State. And there was a place close to the college 
um, that's all ceramics and uh, other uh, crafts that people would call uh, folk art. And this woman who owned that uh, little store imported a lot of things from Africa. And I began to collect very small items from Africa uh, because I love the carving. I love the wood. I love the way that the wood had different colors. I love the variety of wood. Um, I love the way different lines went in different directions. I love the figures that, uh, you know, that I would buy. And these were small things. These None of this, these things that I bought was bigger than 12 inches. You know, it was just little things that I would be able to put in my bedroom, uh, my dorm room, you know, and it would be small enough so that my roommate would not say, why do you have that? <laughs> and so on. Um, but but um, I, I used to feel, oh, my God, there is, there is such great beauty coming from Africa and and it looks like not that very many people are aware of it or mm. connected to it. Yeah. And the same thing happened to me thinking about Latin art. Uh, you know, I grew I grew up uh, seeing quite a number of people painting, people who were trained and other people who were not, people who went to big schools in Europe or in the States to learn how to uh, be an artist and people who just began doing it on their own. And, and but I, I thought that there was a great deal of um, uh, really good and, and, and uh, very moving art being uh, produced by people uh, from Puerto Rico and from other Latino and Latin American countries. And I, when I, after I graduated from college and I used to go to galleries and, and museums and so on, I did not see that many. Mm-hmm. I did not see um, that kind of art in, on the walls, you yeah. know, and, and I used to say, well, why isn't this art being shown? Why isn't it being appreciated? Where are those artists? What's happening with those artists? And um, part of what I wanted to do when I finally got to open the gallery was to make sure that there was a place for those kinds of artists to show their works. You know, by now, Latino and Latin American art has, has become more unknown uh, has become more popular. It's still, you know, not the most popular yet. Of course. But there is a recognition that African American artists produce fantastic art, that Africa actually influenced a number of the artists in Europe, people like Picasso. Um, and um, the, um, you know, that, 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 um, uh, we kind of get used to seeing things in particular ways, and um, and it is important to expand what we see yeah. because by expanding what we see uh, and what we interact with, we're kind of expanding our own uh, sensitivity. True. You know, 
our own uh, uh, range of emotions and so on. So I, I, um, I don't feel that art is um, only for the rich. You know, I, I think that um, there are all kinds of ways in which you can live with art. You can bring oh, yes. art, oh, yeah. you know. And, um, and, and one of the things that, that I try to do is to make sure that um, art is accessible. You know, I mean, I have a business, I'm selling art, but I want to make sure that I'm able to sell art that is accessible in terms of price. Mm. You know, that uh, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not beyond a number of people. Um, and, um, and that in some kind of way, those who come to the gallery or to any show that I've put together, yeah. that those people have um, an experience that they have an emotional connection in some way to what is being shown. And the emotional connection could be, what is that? Oh. <laughs> you know, like puzzled, what? Because, for example, when you do abstract things and people say, what was the artist thinking about when they did that? You know, it, I can't quite uh, figure out what's being shown there. Yeah. And that is, you know, that's a reaction. And that's, um, um, that's a connection that an artist is making with someone who's never seen abstract art. Or it could be, oh, that is wonderful, that's beautiful, I love it, I would love to have it. You know, that's also another kind of connection that one can have. But um, I, I feel like I kind of went around. Oh, no, 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 that's it's beautiful. I love when you said, you know, your, your, your def definition of your own personal definition of art being having a feeling after encountering a work by an artist. You know, or a work of art that you come across, you know, because when I apply that to myself, it, it, it's true. It's uh, I, I can relate to that. I think that works for me, too, because yeah. I do have um, every piece of art that I have at home is something that I had a reaction to and a positive reaction to or something that I, I was curious about. And then I engaged with the artist. And if I liked what I heard, like even sometimes I look at the art and I'm like, I'm not even sure about this at first. And then I engage with the artist who made this. What's this about? Or well, why is this like this? Why is this shaped like that? What, what? And then, oh, okay, I, I, I like what I heard. And I might not even be as um, drawn to the artwork, but just from talking to the artist, I pick it up and sometimes I, I do that so yeah that's yeah. i've um gotten a few works of art at home and oh I, I long evolved from the mentality that um art is only for the rich because i i think that there is one another reason for why i had that uh, mindset was because all the when it came to like paintings especially anything i had to do with paintings um, it was only white artists, especially like white Europeans that we mm. were shown. And it was never, you know, we're never told, we, we never saw black artists. We never, we never even knew that um, uh, Latinos did 
same thing too. It was just like only white men. We weren't even aware that women did paintings too or had those drawings and all that. It just seemed like only white people did it. And with white people, then you start associating money. And so right. little by little, you start looking, like, I'm not in that bracket. I'm not in this. This is not for me. And you start, you know, withdrawing yourself. But the moment you start seeing that, wait, there's, it's not just one group of people only. The art artists everywhere, for every corner of the earth, there's people involved. You find painters in every single country. No matter mm -hmm. what type of government they have, there are people who are into artwork, there are people into art, there are people into paintings, there are people into drawings, there are people into every type of art, the, the sculpture, name it, you find it. And you start, your 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 interpretation starts changing because you're like, wait, did, yeah, you, everybody can, you should be able to access that information, everybody should be able to access that knowledge. But when it's only one type of picture that's being presented, like, oh, these people, this is the best, this is the, the type, this is the world that you need, this is the only, good stuff we call it comes from here and then it's a programming that unfortunately a lot of us within my circle were having at one point in time and we just went with it so i i never yeah i didn't i didn't even realize that there were galleries in nigeria you know mm -hmm. until i became an adult yeah then i would hear of a gallery and I was, oh is this, is this brand new and then you hear that oh this gallery has been around for over 20 years like what what but you don't hear about stuff like that during your your formative years in school, you know, because it's like I don't know if they're ashamed of it or that's why I blame it all on colonialism because it's just only one the British Empire type of thing is just being uplifted and that's the ultimate thing that you always keep seeing and you're like, but you have the same you have great stuff too around you and if you don't value that, how would you even know that there are artists in other places that. Maybe maybe a, a, a child might, might be more inspired by an artist from Puerto Rico, but you don't even know about Puerto Rico existing. So you're like, oh, okay. Uh, I don't like this thing I'm seeing from um, Europe. So maybe this is not for me exactly. And then maybe down the line, and you now find out, wait, there are artists from here who did the type of art that you were more in line with, or there are artists from India, or there are artists from... Um, Vietnam, it, it doesn't matter, but that's why representation is important and diversity is important. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I that I think one begins to see is a way, you know, as a, as the world, as we're more aware that the world is very global. Yes. That there are people moving not only in person, but with ideas, you begin to see um, uh, much more in what people produce. Mm -hmm. I show an artist, I began showing him in 2002. Uh, he had just arrived from Cuba a few years before that. And uh, his name is Alexis Mendoza. And Alexis is a... Um, an abstract painter, but um, you know, I mean, his his work is really exquisite. His work is really masterful. But I did not realize to what degree um, his work incorporated a number of things because um, he uh, follows 
um, uh, certain African religions yeah. uh, from Yoruba. Yoruba, I was about to mention that too. And so one time he's explaining to me the various colors that he's using on the canvas. And he's explaining not only the colors, but he's explaining the kind of sequence that he goes in applying those colors mm. because it has religious references. Yes. And he explained, you know, it was like an unbelievable thing because I realized not only he was trained at the university in Cuba, he's also been trained in in the States, but there's also all of this um, uh, information and culture that he's bringing from his African ancestors that he melds into the paintings that he does. And, and so the, the beauty of his paintings is that once you know all of that, it's like even deeper, you know, it's yeah. a deeper appreciation because you realize how he is connecting all of these different uh, kinds of things in, uh, you know, on a piece that he's doing. He's begun doing sculpture. Oh, nice. And so he's been using uh, wood. Mm. very organic wood okay and um that element that i liked in the little african um pieces that i bought when i was in college he's got that but much larger okay you know he he responds to the various colors of different uh woods that he works with and they're all abstract wow. you know so they don't look like like a person or yeah. a tree or or an animal or anything. No, there are no figures there. Okay. It's just an organic form and he follows the shape of the organic form and um, and they're fantastic. You know, they're really they're they're really great. I also have a couple of other artists who um, who combine they're the so-called New Yorican artists. Yes, that was going to be a question I was going to ask. So New Yorkian artists are um, usually uh, individuals who were born in Puerto Rico and brought here as youngsters, you know, five, six, seven years old, or um, youngsters whose parents are from Puerto Rico who uh, learned Spanish Spanglish almost, if you want to call that, you know, who learned how to enjoy certain kinds of food, even though they were not born in the island. So um, in the 1960s, 70s, um, that uh, moniker was applied to uh, these artists. And they were not just visual artists, but uh, mm. uh, also poets and dramatist and musician. So um, in the Lower East Side in particular, uh, there was a, uh, a kind of movement of um, artists of that, uh, you know, who identify with their Puerto Rican culture. And, uh, and, and that's how the New Yorican term um, uh, grew. There was a uh, the New Yorkian Poets Cafe, and there were all kinds of other um, um, venues and other elements involved. 
but these these artists, uh, the visual artists and the sculptural artists, uh, use um, some of the uh, some of the images of the indigenous people, the Taino Indians, mm -hmm. you know, in the work that they do. Yes. Um, they use also uh, some of the imagery that unites the African, the Taino, and the European, because after all, in the islands, in Puerto Rico in particular, uh, we're all descendants of these three branches, you yes. know. And, and so uh, to one degree or another, we carry um, those images on our face mm -hmm. <laughs> or in, in, uh, uh, in the food that we eat. Uh, in um, sometimes in our beliefs, um, our religious beliefs. Oh, yeah. So, um, so they combine all of that. They combine all of this, and they actually, it's not just like, um, you know, doing a stew, combining stuff, but it's actually creating something new out of that combination. And since they are in New York, New Yorkans, you know, mm. since they are in New York, they have been exposed to some of the most incredible art that you could find. You know, in New York, you have um, um, colonial vestiges for sure, but some of the most important um, art institutions in uh, not only the country, but in the world. You know, the Met Museum being one of them. Um, the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum. Uh, you also have um, uh, museums like the Jewish Museum or the Museum of Natural History, you know, where all of this kind of richness of uh, material and ideas are concentrated. So the New Yorkian artists have had a chance to interact with a lot of that. And that has also appeared in the work that they, you know, that they produce. It isn't just um, uh, work from the island. It's work uh, that includes some of the island culture and values, but also in the context of New York City, which is, uh, you know, a major kind of thing. So my point is that in a global world, you are mixing all of these various elements. Yes. And uh, and you're coming up with new ways of looking at uh, looking at reality, looking at emotions, looking at what's valuable. So, I I'm trying to think about the first time I heard the word New Yorkan. I'm guessing it may have been in. Um, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Sotomayor's memoir. Because uh -huh. that was the book that, w when I was reading it, I was like, this is, if you had told me that this was about somebody living in Nigeria, I would have believed it. If you, you had just switched location from the Bronx to Nigeria, when she was talking about the Bronx in the 70s, the use of the lanterns, and all that, yeah, we, we did all that. It's, that was like a common thing in in the 90s for me. And I was like, wow, this, this was, we, we don't have that 
image of America from the movies <laughs> that we watched. And it was the whole experience that she went through. I think Neorican was mentioned in that book. But I know Neorican was something that I've that has always been in my mind somewhere for some time. So I think it was um, Sotomayor's memoir. That's where I first came across that word. But yeah, it's... It is, um, it is something that you find, uh, particularly in a certain generation of uh, people of Puerto Rican descent. Mm. Some of the younger um, artists of Puerto Rican descent sometimes use the phrase, but they use it together with a whole host of other descriptors for themselves. They okay. just don't describe themselves as just New Yorkians. You mm. know, they have other descriptors. Okay. But it's still, you know, it's still an interesting uh, notion. Oh, yeah. So, um, one last question on your gallery. Uh, what led you to officially opened gallery and what, um, how did you come about the name? You know, why did you choose that name? My name, you know, my gallery's name is Martinez. Yes, oh. I know. <laughs> did, did, did you think of a, did you try to go with a different name or? No, you know, one of the things about selling art, and I knew that I was going to be selling art. Mm -hmm. I wasn't just going to do a nonprofit okay. that would just show art for the sake of showing art. I think that there are many artists who want to sell their works. They want their works to go mm -hmm. to other residences, to offices, to other places. They want other people to be interacting with their art. And the way to do that is to sell it. So I knew that uh, it is important when you have uh, um, a business like an art gallery that you use your name to stand behind what it is that you're offering. Mm. So in many ways, by using your name, you're, say, you're saying, I'm vouching for this. I am saying that this is good and I am involving my name. It's sort of like when you have um, a, a lawyer using uh, a particular, you know, their name to say there, this is the law firm. Yes. Or, or the, um, or the doctor that uses her or his name to say, you know, this is, um, I'm the doctor who's, uh, uh, who uh, will do a good job or a lousy job. Yeah, you know? this is their practice. I'm standing yeah. behind, mm -hmm. I'm standing behind this. Yes. So um, that, that was the, um, that was my, um, my sense. There are many galleries that have the name of the person who, uh, who started it, who founded it. There are other galleries that don't. One of the things that I wanted to make sure is that I would not show art just for the sake of showing mm. art that I did not like. I told myself I will only show those artists whose work I like. I'm not going to be selling art that I might be very popular and might, you know, myself, yeah. but I do not like it and I do not respect it. So in many ways, 
I'm, I'm kind of putting myself out there saying, I like this work that I am selling. And I think that it's very good work. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, you know, a number of the artists that I have are people who are in, in very well-recognized collections in museums or in corporate collections or individual collections. And so they have a certain kind of uh, standing, even though they're not famous. Yeah. You know, they're known in certain in certain groups, in certain uh, uh, sets. But um, um, but I'm also I've also started showing what are called emerging artists, um, namely new artists, people who are just coming out, who are just uh giving their first shows and uh and and kind of making their way when i started showing um um, mendoza he was not yet well known in 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 the states so you you open the doors for you're like a door opener has now now, you know he's written several books he shows in museums he's shown in uh, outside of outside of the USA, so he's no longer no longer an emerging artist. Mm-hmm. He's a very well established artist, but at the beginning he was an emerging artist. And I have to tell you, my youngest emerging artist is an eleven-year-old, a Chinese American. Oh wow! And she is terrific. Wow! She is so good, and she has such a such a fantastic attitude, you know. Uh, some of her work is very serious. She takes very deep issues, peace and war mm-hmm. and justice. Oh, and then wow. she also does things where she is kind of um, showing that she is someone who lives in New York City and knows, uh, you know, how to make fun of things. So. <laughs> So that's how she's not a Latino artist, but that's yeah. one of the things that I've begun to see that there are a number of artists who are not Latino, but may not come from European backgrounds. And they are interested in, uh, you know, in being in a group of artists mm-hmm. uh, with a group of artists that, uh, um, you know, that get paid attention to because of, uh, you know, of being shown in, in my in my gallery. And there's also still the connection between us, you know, like the even though she's Chinese American, there's there's still an if you go back down yeah. the route, you know, there's always been a connection between the Asian Latino community too. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's always connections yeah. between worlds. Yeah. So that that was beautiful. So um I have to start winding it down so but there are some fun, I have to step away from the art world a little bit and jump into some fun questions like we've been talking fun but these are like extra fun <laughs> questions now so uh there's no way I wasn't going to bring this question up and you had brought you had mentioned this topic just briefly and it reminded me of an experience that I had pre-pandemic yeah it was just before we went into lockdown yeah it was uh 2019 winter of oh, 20- yeah. yeah it was uh yeah i think november 2019 
And a good friend of mine who's also Puerto Rican invited me to his family's uh, pastelis. Yes. And I was like, I don't know what this is. Like, bring the family. So I brought my wife and my daughter and showed up and I saw the largest amount of unripe plantains that I've ever seen in (laughs) one room. And I was like, "Uh, we do eat unripe plantains. Uh, It's one of our traditional, um, one of my my tribe's traditional meals is from unripe, made up of unripe plantains, mm-hmm. um, which we make a porridge of, and then you eat it with uh, pepper soup, which is it gets really spicy. So the unripe plant, the plantain porridge is um, has um, there's two versions. One is with um, you can make it with dried. There's this fish called dried fish. I do, they call it dried fish. Nigerians know that. Uh, catfish pepper soup. Uh, we create. My tribe is crazy about catfish. I'm not. I can't do. I can't do catfish. That's one where I get disqualified. But uh, yeah, the, the nickname is KKF. Yeah. Oh. KKF. If you meet an Ijo person and you want to score, you want to score high ratings among them. Tell them you're eating KKF or you want to eat KKF. They're just gonna fall in love with you. Like, oh my goodness, this person. Yeah. So I saw so many unripe plantains and I was like, what is going on in this house? And he was like, oh, it's pastillas. I was like, and they put, gave me a hat <laughs> to put on. They're like, yeah, come. Will you like to partake? I was like, there's no way I'm gonna come just sit down, and see you working. I have to do something. So I got involved and I was like, you know what? This stuff you guys are doing is like making something else that we eat, which is called moi moi. Uh-huh. And moi moi is connected to another friend of mine who is Venezuelan, also a, a Rafael, is um, mm-hmm. my, my, my brother. And when I visited him, he lives now lives in Florida. He gave me something that they had, which is, um, I keep forgetting the name, Ayate, I think they called it as Ayate. Yatas. Yatas. Ayakas. 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 Yes, yes. And gas was wrapped in a leaf. He said it was made of corn. And I, when I took a photo and posted it on Facebook, every Nigerian commenting was like, where did you get moi moi from? Ours is made from um, black eyed peas, which you soak for a couple of days. And then it, the seed, the skin separates from the seeds. Then you blend the seeds. That's the, um, then you, 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 you literally prepare almost the same, exact same way as the pastilles and the, Ayakas and put in the same, wrap it up in the leaves and steam it up. And that's moi moi. Whatever you want to add in it, if you want to add eggs, uh, meat, whatever, up to the person making it. But traditional moi moi is the, the black eyed peas. But it looks exactly like the pastilles and ayakas. And when I took photos I sent again, it was the same thing. Nigerians were arguing with me, like, you don't know what moi moi is anymore. You've been in America for too long. Like, you don't know. I'm like, dude, it, I'm the one who ate it. It's not moi moi. I prepared it, and I know what it was. But people in Puerto Rico have some that they prepare almost like we prepare moi moi, but it, they use plantains, which is different from what we have. And I'm like, there's some, if there was a doubt that we had connection to Africa in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, I think now there's no more doubt anymore. I'm 100% on board. Like this is, yeah, we, we, there's connections here. There's connections with Venezuela. There's connections in the Caribbean. There's connections everywhere. We, we, yeah, there's, we, we can, this, we can throw away that doubt, throw it out the window. 
And it was one of the best experiences that we had. And his family was, they were like, wow, I was, they were so surprised by the way I was so um, excited to be making the pastilles that they were like, yeah, we will invite you again to come back. And then the pandemic happened. So we haven't done it again. So I'm looking forward to the next time I get to uh, make pastilles again, because now my daughter is older. So she will definitely have to make some herself and get into the game. <laughs> so when it comes to food, pastilles is the only Puerto Rican food I can tell you of. Uh, off head now, but um, do, w- w- what what um, are you big on Puerto Rican cuisine and w- which do you like to make it yourself or? Um, yes, I I I I know how to cook uh, some Puerto Rican cuisine. Okay, uh, pasteles are very labor intensive. Oh, it is. So <laughs> That's I've <right>. never, <laughs> you know, I've never done pasteles, but pasteles you can do. Also with something called yautias, which are tubers, ah. or with something that's like cassava, you know, banana. Ah. And it's the whole idea of, of having like a kind of dumpling, although not really a dumpling, you know, of having something that is encased in this uh, masa that you would make. And, uh, oh, so and so inside of a cell, you have, you know, you might have pork or you might have beef or you might have just vegetables and chickpeas and all of that kind of stuff but the uh thing that makes the pastel um and that's why when they make them uh usually people make like a hundred pasteles you Mm -hmm. know because it's so much work that you want to make sure that you save some of it and you put it in the in the freezer yes uh for next time but i i um you know, I like some of the things that don't take one day or a day and a half oh, to yeah. make. I'm, yeah. I'm in the same so, boat. <laughs> and, and even, you know, like, like um, um, we like uh, a lot of um, uh, pork on, on, on the spit, you know, to mm. be roasted. Okay. But you can actually buy that. That's called pernil. You can buy, a, um, you know, a great a piece of um, of pork and fix it with uh, with garlic and uh, um, salt and pepper and uh, you know all kinds of other things to give it taste, including uh, lemon, and uh, and you roast that. Mm. And of course, it's fantastic if it has a part of the skin, because if it has part of the skin, that becomes very um, kind of um, uh, crisp yeah. and it's a delight to be able to eat that and and every now and then I I do that I'll roast that uh, I like the, um, uh, plantains that are ripened yeah and, uh, and, and you can the plantains that are ripened you can boil or you can fry mm-hmm. or you can roast and sometimes when you roast them you can put cheese over the roasted plantain, or you can put a lot of butter over the roasted plantain. Oh, with butter. I'm they not are that. terrific. They're terrific. I grew up actually having plantains almost every day in some particular way. And when the plantains are not ripened, you have you can make a toston, which is you fry the plantain and then you softly squish it so that it becomes really nice and large and then you refry it oh. and you put lots of salt sea salt on tostones 
is that and mojito or rum and coke okay. or any other kind of drink is <laughs> or just or just lemonade wow. it's a terrific it's a terrific thing to to have yeah that that sounds uh, that sounds really yeah yummy. It's, it's, it's fantastic the other thing that i enjoy a lot is um um uh, chicken and rice mm. arroz con pollo you know and chicken and rice can be done in a hundred different ways that's true so you can put tomatoes on the rice or you can just do saffron on the rice you can uh, use different um, um, parts of the chicken to make your chicken with rice and uh, and it's always a, and you can make it for two people or you can make it for 16 people or more that's true you know. so it's, um, that, that's pretty much a uh, Puerto Rican, but it's also a Cuban dish, and and it's a, a Spanish dish because it's like a paella, mm. you know, which is uh, uh, although the paella sometimes is made with uh, shellfish or other times with uh, sausages, different kinds of sausages. So there are, uh, you know, there are a lot of elements of uh, Puerto Rican cuisine that I personally like to use on a regular basis. I, I don't think that I would call myself a Puerto Rican cook as such, because I like other things. Oh, yeah. You know, I like Italian food. I like Chinese food. No, I'm, I'm, you're, you're like me. I eat everything. But yeah, I, so when I cook, I cook I can cook. I cook Nigerian food, but it's Nigerian food is yeah. labor intensive. It's like woo. yeah. So you you add you add <laughs> different different elements. One of the things that I like every now and then, my grandmother used to love okra. Oh yeah, we do okra we, too. You know, and we used to call it kimbombo, which mm. of course is an African word, kimbombo. And um, I don't have kimbombo regularly, but when I have it, I always think of my grandmother. You know, it's kind of like this is, this is the, um, um, this is the 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 one thing that uh, uh, she loved the most. Um, the vegetable she loved the most, and then I also I also like to have slices of avocado in almost anything. You know, if you do white rice with uh, kidney beans, mm -hmm. and then you. Uh, make sliced avocados you put sliced avocado on top of that that's really you've got a whole meal there i've never you tried it you don't need anything more mm, you know i should try it yeah it's a and that is very healthy actually. yeah it is it sounds avocado. it sounds very healthy anyway yeah. i i yeah. i talk more about food <laughs> <laughs> but i get hungry <laughs> You know, fun thing about plantains is that um, we, we call ripe plantains dodo. That's the, uh -huh. yeah, that's when, when you say dodo, that's all over Nigeria. You say dodo everywhere in Nigeria. Everybody knows it's ripe plantain you're talking about. And uh, when it comes to roasted ripe plantains, depending on what part of Nigeria you, you find yourself in, there's um, the, the popular way to eat ripe plantains in mostly most of the western part is with um, peanuts which we call granuts uh -huh. so either with um, roasted granuts with roasted granuts yes um in the western parts 
but we are from the south southern part of the country so um we tend to prefer with roasted fish uh, and they, they add some palm oil they sprinkle palm oil like while, while, the, while the, the plantain is, and the fish they, they, they roast them together and then put in an old newspaper slice it together and then sprinkle some palm oil back then used to be palm oil in old newspapers so the, they, they both soak together in the paper and then you know you get that's what you buy on the streets and they they, they, they hand it over to so you. So is your food very spicy, very hot? Uh, it tends to be on the spicy side, but I know now people have, you know, they, they've realized that people have tastes that not everybody can handle spicy. So uh -huh. you're allowed to have <laughs> the, the choice of, because uh, they, they, they used to be, um, you can add, they, they can slice peppers and onions and all that uh -huh. and garnish it also. But um, yeah, the, some places it's just only the plantain and the fish you get um by itself other places like my like my, my mom she doesn't do the planting and fish she never used to so i didn't realize i got that from her i'm 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 more of the planting and granite person and when when i'll go home people will if you went and bought me planting and fish i'll be trying to pick the fish out because they don't fillet the fish so the bones and everything is still oh, so in the bones there. Are yeah. In it. Yeah. yeah so well i um you know it did, in puerto rico by and large there's not a whole lot of spicy food but it depends on the on the family some families do like to put hot peppers and things like that other families just go with the uh with the garlic and uh the oregano mm. you know that, those are those are the things that that they use most um there is you mentioned cod dry cod and dry cod is something that especially the older generation used to love to do but of course it it meant that you have to put the cod in water for a couple of days and take out the water because there was all this salt yeah. and then some new water and then take out the water so if you wanted cod, you had to think, well, I want cod three days from today. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you had to rid of all of that salt, you know. And then oh, yeah. it would be made in something that uh, would be like a kind of fricassee uh, tomato with uh, some peppers and actually even uh, onions and... and um, and olives and and other kinds of things, capers yeah. and so on. And you would have that with a lot of the tubers, the wow. yaukias, the mm -hmm. cassava, the uh, yams, you know, and you would put all of that on top of those of those uh, vegetables. That my father used to love, mm. you know, that was that was something from his generation. And they used to love to do that. And it was very much like a country dish, you know, that uh, as well as a certain kinds of fish would be fried, but they would fillet them after they were fried. Yeah. But the fact is that, you know, sometimes it was very difficult to get rid of all the, uh, the bones. Uh, the bones yeah. and, uh, so you ended up having to be very careful as a child, they would tell you, you know, be careful, be careful. Ah, yeah, nobody, <laughs> nobody tells you to be careful in Nigeria. It's like you, 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 you figure, you, 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 you know. 
<laughs> when you, the bone pricks you, you're like, ah! You're like, yep. That's right. You, 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 right. you figured it out. Do you go fishing by any chance in Brooklyn? I haven't. I, I, I'm, I, I do come from a tribe of lots of fishermen, but fishing is one thing I'm not uh -huh. good at. <laughs> I yeah. need to, yeah, I need to get into fishing. I'm, I should try it more often, yeah. but I've never I've really. I think lots of young people fishing, which is really, I've never really gone fishing, and Neither I rather I. go. I like to go to the to the fishmonger and select my fish. Yeah, I, I do that too. I, I'm not the guy who's gonna go catch fish. To no, 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 exactly. I, I can't do that. Nope, no. Uh -oh. <laughs> Oh, this has been a fun, fun conversation. I really, I could go on and on, but um, I have to start wrapping up because I uh, really appreciate you giving me your time. But um, to uh, final question to end this. Well, before I get to final, just one quick answer for this question before the final question. If I needed you to, uh, one, one musician that will keep you dancing for one hour, who would that be? that's interesting a musician that would keep me dancing for an hour um i haven't danced for an hour in a long okay 30 time. minutes <laughs> no, actually you know I, I there's a new documentary that's coming out it's not new but okay. they, they finally are releasing it um they use they show african rumba mm. or african salsa i'm, I'm sorry it's by a Canadian, oh. and it was advertised recently. And the music was so incredible. You know, obviously, salsa is something that can keep you, you know, going and going and going. But um, I, I, um, I'm, I'm not doing too much salsa or too much. Uh, you know, bachata or that sort of thing um, uh, anymore. I have some difficulties moving sometimes. So, um, but I I do love um, I love boleros. I love um, um, you know rumba. I love um, um, the. Sometimes I see these uh, videos from the 19, uh, early 1940s, uh, Cubans who were in those big bands in the 1940s, mm -hmm. um, they joined uh, the American big bands. And some of their, the sounds are just, are just incredible. Uh, I like listening to jazz a lot, you know. Okay, so, so one favorite jazz artist then, because you can, you can still yeah. move to jazz. Well, you know, um, sometimes I, I was listening to um, a Thelonious Monk recently, oh, um, and, um, and and it's very, you know, it's very, uh, how would I say, uh, brainy in one sense yeah. when you when you listen to him. But I also I also like uh, uh, some of the uh, singers like Ella and. Um, um, oh my God, my, my favorite one is actually not Ella, but, um, um, I saw her in, um, I saw her in New York city a couple of times at the, uh, at Carnegie hall. Oh, and I'm forgetting her name. This is awful. 
But anyway, I I love to listen to them singing and uh, you know and and sometimes uh, swinging with them. Uh, so I I have a very broad sense of uh, music that I enjoy. Uh, and anyway. <laughs> I think music is music is my. I think just like food, I enjoy music from everywhere, and I always encourage people to enjoy music yeah. from everywhere. I do want to. I do want to uh, uh, leave my uh, website. Oh uh, yeah, you will get to that. You will get to that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. So um, the final question: What would you like to leave the audience with? It's uh, it could be a line from a work of art that inspired you, or it could be a line from a book that you've read, or it could be a line from, you know, something you're writing, anything you would like to leave the audience with. Well, I have, I have on a wall in the gallery, I have this line, live with beauty by art. Live with beauty by art. Yes, by art. Live with it. Mm. You know, I mean, and if you, if, um, there are a number of artists who do what are called assemblages, which means that they collect stuff and then they uh, put it together and they make a, um, a work. So sometimes when I'm when I've walked, I might find a really interesting uh, stone. Yes. And that looks really terrific, or I might find actually a piece of metal that fell off a car or whatever, mm -hmm. and it has an interesting shape. Oh, yes, I understand now, yes. Yeah, so I might take that and bring it with me. Sometimes um, there is a, uh, a piece of wood. You can be at the beach or you could just be walking, you know, and there's an interesting piece of wood that you, that you find, mm. and uh, you might take it with you. Um, there are times when when um, you can have some art that you find. It's not. It doesn't have to be art that you buy. Yes. Of course, when you are at the beach, there are uh, seashells and sometimes um, uh, glass that has color uh, that people collect. Um, all of those things are. Are, are great. Um, there are uh, different kinds of um, of um, um, fruits that dry out, and in a walk, um, even in your neighborhood, neighborhood, you might see the fruit on the ground dried, mm -hmm. and that, if you put on the windowsill, can be a really nice thing to look at for a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that we could say is art like, yep. and why not why not enjoy it? So I I do say live with beauty by art, but you could also live with beauty, look for beauty around you. Oh. Look for beauty around you. I love both of them. I love both of them. Thank you so much, Lina, for sharing your time with us today. So if people want to find you, where's the best place to go to find you? Well, um, my website is 
God, Martinez Gallery, all that is one word, and Martinez is with a Z, martinezgallery.org. And I have all kinds of really great virtual exhibitions. So you can see a whole exhibition right on the website. One of my exhibitions is of New Yorkian artists. And that's a very, um, that's a great exhibition. I also have an exhibition that is celebrating my 20 years, my 20 years anniversary. That exhibition has um, uh, works from almost 40 artists, uh, a wide range of artists, um, Latino, non-Latino, African-American, Asian, really fantastic artists. So you can find me at that um, website. You can also contact me if you want to write and ask any question. You can uh, contact me through the website. Awesome. Uh, you can send me a note. And then now we have just um, uh, started a YouTube channel. Oh, lovely. I'll, I'll go yes. subscribe. So, so we have... Um, there are some very short interviews where artists are talking about uh, their process in uh, in painting or in sculpting or whatever. Uh, at this point, I think we have about four or five um, um, very short um, uh, videos. So you might want to take a look at that you might subscribe and i'm going to be churning out a few of those during the summer all right uh and uh so people will be able to find i'm also going to be talking about some of the art itself you know sometimes people look at art and they say how do you look at a painting mm. what do you look for so i think that it might be fun to do a few things like that. Okay. So uh, there will be a way in which people will be able to um, to subscribe to the channel. All right. I'll make sure I add that to the show notes with the website so people can that get would in be touch. Great. And of course, I want to have our conversation so that I can also post it. I will, I will share that with you too. <laughs> yeah. All right. So once again... There's another website. Thank it's you. It's always of you to have invited me. Really. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Always my pleasure and honor. So uh, to everyone listening, thank you for joining us. and appreciate you all. And don't forget to subscribe and keep sharing. And um, make sure you check out the links to um, Lordelina Martinez's gallery and um, website and YouTube channel also. All right, and thank you for the uh, privilege of your company. See you next week at the next episode. Thanks for listening to White Label American. If you enjoyed the show, we'll appreciate if you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. If you have any questions, comments, or have someone who will be a good guest on the show, or you want to be on the show, send us a message at whitelabelamerican at gmail.com and make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at whitelabelamerican 
thank you for your support.